Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. My name is Andrew Woods, and I have the pleasure of being one of the elders here at Grace Covenant Church, and I am so grateful that you are here so that we can read the Word of God this morning. And as was talked about already by Brandon when he was giving us the announcements, we are in what we call Missions Month here at Grace Covenant Church. And during Missions Month, we like to talk about different missionaries we support, whether that be the Entwistles or the Blairs, or we think about different organizations like To Every Tribe or Word and Deed or even Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All of these things we are very passionate about and very excited about to talk about. But we thought as elders, it would be really important, considering the context of the last few months that we've been through, for us to really narrow down and actually take a month and topically unpack the idea of the mission of the church. So typically, here at GCC, we are an expositional teaching church. We walk line by line, word by word, through the scripture as we have been going through 1 Samuel. But there are times in which we can do topical preaching to help us understand certain ideas. So that is what this month will be. And what we're searching for this month from God's word is what is the mission of the church. So as we seek to answer this question, we must first begin by defining the word mission. So what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the word mission? Maybe it's the Mission Impossible movie series with Tom Cruise. I know we've probably got some fans in here, maybe me. Uh, Maybe you knew uh, before the movie series, you knew about the television series, Mission Impossible. I never saw that, but I heard it was good. Maybe you're a gamer in here and you like to play games and so you uh, are are thinking about the mission, the next mission that your video game is going to send you on or the next match that you have to participate in. Or maybe some of you have been in the military or law enforcement and have actually been given real life missions to accomplish. Now as we think through that and if you've actually been given a real life mission in your life to ever complete, you understand the incredible importance of having a clearly defined mission. If you don't have a clearly defined mission, you don't even know what you're supposed to go out and do. You don't even know what you're supposed to go out and accomplish. Now this can happen or this can be helpful for all walks of life. When we think about things like business, you'll see businesses have a, have a mission statement or education or health, or whatever walk of life it may be, you name it, it is important to have a mission. And the problem that tends to happen is that mission is not clearly defined, and when it's not clearly defined, it can start to kind of accumulate all these other really good tasks that are good, but aren't the actual mission. So it starts, the the mission starts to grow. It's this, and this, and this, and then pretty soon nobody understands what they're supposed to be doing anymore. So we see that it is so important for us to have a clearly defined mission. Let me, let me give you an example. As a police officer for the Los Angeles Police Department, when I was sworn in, I was sworn in to uphold the Constitution to maintain justice and peace in the city of Los Angeles. That was kind of my overall identity as becoming a police officer. But I didn't just stay there. Then I was assigned to certain divisions. So I was assigned to traffic division. 
Nobody likes traffic division. But when you get assigned to traffic division, you have a very specific mission. You are to uphold traffic law and investigate collisions. That's your job. That's your mission. But say, at some point, I said, you know what? That stuff's boring. I want to be going after the gang members and the narcotics investigations and all that cool high-speed stuff. And I decide one day, you know what? I'm just going to do that instead. And so then I go off mission, still within the scope of what I do as a police officer, but not in my mission anymore. And then a good supervisor would probably grab me by the ear and say, hey, young buck, that's not your mission. We've got guys that are doing that mission. Stay on your mission. We need you to accomplish what you have been called to accomplish. So without a clearly defined mission, we can, even as the church, start to accumulate things or start to do things that may not be the track we're supposed to be in, may not be the lane that we're supposed to be in, but still be good things. Everything from evangelism to social justice to societal reform to environmentalism, all of these things can all of a sudden start being brought in saying, this is the mission of the church. Now, all of these things can be good, properly defined, okay, You hear me say that, right? They can be good, properly defined for a Christian to participate in in their Christian life, but not all of these things are the mission of the church. So this morning, our task then is to walk through some definitions. We're going to define a few words. Then we're going to kind of give ourselves a redemptive sketch of history to find out where we are and what the problem is And then I'm going to give you just the tiniest definition of what the church is because one of our elders next week, Dennis, will get up and he will just unlock that for us next week. So be praying for our brother as he studies to to give us that. I'm going to give you the tiniest definition of what the church is and then I'm going to tell you what the mission of the church is not. That's our task before us this morning. So as we do that, I want you to hear the word of God. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9. Hear the infallible word of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Hear the word of God. So as we start in this verse, the reason why I want us to start here is so we can see this beautiful reality of what it means to be a people of God. We're not always a people of God, but God at some point calls us out of darkness into the glorious light, which is Christ. He calls us into that light, and we are given a new identity. We were once not a people, now we are a people, God's own possession. We're a royal priesthood. 
we hear. We are called into a new identity when we are called out of darkness and into light. We also see in this where we start kind of getting our marching orders of this new people. In fact, we are called to proclaim the excellencies. We are called to have a a mission of proclamation, you might say. So this new people are called to then go out and proclaim the excellencies of God. Even amidst Gentiles or other nations who, who would be angry and hateful towards these new called out people. But that this would be our testimony amidst all the world. So this gives us kind of a flavor of where we're going to be going this morning. But we have to start in defining some words. So if you're a note taker, this is kind of section one. We're going to define words, always important. So your definitions this morning. First, we should understand what mission means if this entire month is going to be about the mission of the church. Now, biblically speaking, Mission isn't used a whole lot. You can go back in your concordance and maybe depending on the translation, it might have a couple more or a couple of less. But in the ESV, the English Standard Version, we see that the word mission is used four times. Just four times in the whole Bible. Three of them are going to be in the Old Testament and one of them is going to be in the New. So when we look at this and we try to understand what mission means, the two words in Hebrew that are going to help us understand what mission means is Mase and then Derek. And so when we look at these two words, we're going to get a hint of what it means to have a mission. So Judges 13.12 is where we see Mase. So write that down in your notes. Go back and read it later on. But this is about the mission of Samson. This is when his mother is saying, what is going to be my child's mission? What have you called him to go out and do and accomplish? The other place that we see this is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 18 and 20. This is where the word Derek comes from. Now, we've been preaching through uh, the Psalms, also through 1 Samuel. Uh, Pastor Joel has faithfully, expositorily preached through 1 Samuel for us and into 2 Samuel. And we'll see that this idea of Derek or the path is very commonly used, not just in 1 Samuel, not just in Psalms, but in Proverbs, even in Ecclesiastes, this wisdom idea of will you take the path of righteousness or will you take the path of sinfulness? And so this word Derek then in this context is when Saul was supposed to go out and slaughter an entire people, right? It's kind of that, ooh, He's got to go and he's going to kill everybody? Yes, everybody. Saul was supposed to go and just wipe out the Amalekites. But does he do it? No. No, and Samuel has to call him out on it. Saul does not complete his mission. His mission was to completely wipe them out, and then he changed the mission. He said, I know that's what you said, and I, I, I finished the mission. I just did a couple other things too. And Samuel's like, no. No, you're totally off base here. So we see in these two words in the Hebrew, kind of where we're getting this idea for mission, this this thing that we're supposed to set out to accomplish. Now, let's go to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, talks about mission as well, at least in the ESV. Some translations translate a little bit differently. But what we see in this word, Uh, or or even in this context, is this idea of people boasting about what they've completed. Boasting in what they have done. 
So what we gather then from that is that this idea of mission is a task set out to be accomplished. So if we're going to keep just digging, and I, and I like this, and maybe you're bored of this, but, but I like looking into words and seeing where they come from. The word mission actually originates in Latin. And that word comes from missio, which actually means in the Latin to send forth or mission. That's where we get this word. And then we see how the English language has then taken this idea and kind of continued to build on it. So Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it as the act or instance of sending or a body of persons sent to perform a service or carry on an activity. Okay, I don't think I can beat missions anymore into your brain but I'm going to try, okay? So although we don't see a Greek-English equivalent for the word mission, and although we saw it once uh, in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12, I don't actually think that doesn't mean, there's a lot of negatives in that, I don't actually think that this idea of mission then is not in the New Testament. In fact, I think this idea of mission is laid throughout the New Testament when we look at words like apostle, or when we look at words like angel, or when we look at words like witness, or proclamation. So we see these Greek words, apostolos, angelos, uh, martus, euangelion. We see this just scattered all throughout the New Testament, some of which you're probably very, very familiar with. Um, Mark 28, 19 through 20, that idea that we are to go then and disciple people, teaching them to observe all that Christ has obeyed them to command. When we look at Mark, maybe um, not as familiar to you as Matthew 18 through 20, but when we look at the book of Mark, if I can get there, chapter 16, this is kind of the great commission from Mark, we're going to see the language being used in verses 15 and 16. And Jesus said to them, or and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim. So we see this sending forth to do what? Proclaim. What are they supposed to proclaim? The gospel. To what? The whole creation, right? They're supposed to go out and proclaim. They have been sent on a mission to accomplish. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48 says something similar. I'll start in verse 45. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, there's a task to accomplish that they keep being told to accomplish. John chapter 20 Verse 21, yes, I'm going through all the Gospels here. That's what I'm doing. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So in review then, as we just think very briefly about this definition of mission, you might say, Andrew, that was not brief. Um, briefly think about this definition of mission. You can just write down, mission should be defined as sending forth for a task. Okay, real simple. Sending forth for a task. But if we're going to understand what the mission is, or what mission means, we need to understand what the church means. So now let's draw our attention to defining the word church. Okay, 
Defining the word church is, is much easier, and there's much more words in the New Testament about the church. In fact, ecclesia, or church, is mentioned 117 times in the New Testament and is understood as an assembly, gathering, congregation, or community with a shared belief, specifically trusting in Christ as the Messiah. Now, when we dig a little bit deeper, this is always fun, and we look at the Greek word, we see that ekklesia is actually two Greek words combined. It's ek, out, coming out of or from something, and kaleo, which means to call upon. So when we put these two, two, goods, two words together, we see what this kind of idea of the church is. It is to be called out ones. I think that's really interesting, especially when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember, we were called out of darkness into light. We were given a new identity because the identity of the church are the called out ones who gather together with a specific trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have uh, two definitions then that we have here. We have the mission and we have the church. And, and maybe more importantly or more helpful is that these called out ones who gather called out from darkness and brought into light to become disciples of Christ and that they learn to obey all of Christ's commands. Okay, so what is the specific task then of these called out ones? What are these called out ones called to go out and do? Well, to answer that question, I think helpfully we need to do a redemptive sketch of redemptive history, okay? We need to look at redemptive history and do a, a, just a brief sketch. There, there's that word brief again. Hopefully I'm going to be able to do that. So we're going to go through four categories because we have to understand why is there a mission in the first place if we're going to define what a mission is. So your four categories in like, you can maybe call this section two, your four categories here uh, uh, that we need to understand in redemptive history are going to be creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. So let's jump into it then. As we start off in creation, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And as we go through the creation account in Genesis 1, we see the fact that God will create and then he will call it what? Good. He calls it good. And then after he has created everything, the heavens and the earth were finished, chapter 2 says, and starting in verse 1, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God had created a perfect, an unstained, an unblemished thing. Out of nothing, God created everything, including man. That is creation. And there's so much more to go off on creation and just the beauty of creation. But then we move really quickly and, and sadly to the fall. We move to the fall. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, we read, Now the serpent was made more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So we see the treacherous act of idolatry comes into the sketch of redemptive history. When Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God, and they decided that they would say, no, I'm going to eat of this tree because it's going to make me wise. This is what I want, not what God wants, but I don't care. I'm going to place myself higher than God, which is the sin that all of us struggle with every day. And lest you think that was just then, we move to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So before you can say, okay, they sinned, I get it, but I don't really sin, I would just say, you're lying, and then after that, I would say, it doesn't matter even if there's some you know, way, shape, or form, you were without sin for like a few hours. The reality is you have inherited sin from Adam. We all have. Unless you think you can say, okay, well, maybe that, but I'm really not that bad of a person. Romans 3.10 really just demolishes your argument in any shape, way, or form, where it says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then a nice bow in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the effect of sin in the world. This is the fall. This is depravity. This is what happens when sin enters God's perfect creation. But we got to go back to Genesis really quick and read the most beautiful words in this beginning act of God's redemptive history. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, after the sin has happened, after sin has come into the world, this is what God says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion, which is just a really fancy way of saying the first gospel. Why is it the first gospel? Because sin has entered, entered the world, and what will happen is, although sin will take its effect on Christ on the cross, killing him, Christ will actually be doing the killing. And he destroys sin and death and Satan. And that is who we put our trust in. And that's God's promise, this, this seedling of a promise that we see grow to its full capacity in Galatians chapter 4. So we move then from the fall into redemption, the third category. Now, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7 are a beautiful summary of this. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Remember the seed, the offspring. So he was born under the law, born from a woman. So that we may, so that we might receive, let me just start that over again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God and a holy, a royal people, like we read in 1 Peter 2. Praise be to God. We see that Christ has come, redeemed a people through his perfect obedience to the law that none, starting with Adam, could ever fulfill until the greater Adam came and completed the task of redemption. Because Jesus had a mission too. And we can have distinct missions in the Bible. The mission of the church, the mission of the Son. In fact, again, nerdy theologians will call this the covenant of redemption. We see from the beginning of time that God the Father, God the Son made a covenant together that they would redeem a people by Christ's work on the cross, fulfilling that first gospel in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Christ completes his task, which is why he sits at the right hand of God even right now as a great mediator for those that believe in him. And then we come to the fourth section in this, this broad painting of a picture of glorification. Glorification is the day in which we long and we will be made new. We will have a new body, a glorified body, and we will be in the presence of God forever and for eternity. And we see that that glorification comes in the consummation of the kingdom when Christ comes back. That is that glorification that we long for. 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 13 talks about the new heavens and the new earth that we long for. When everything will be made right, all tears will be wiped away, and we will be in the presence of our God for eternity. We long for that day. So looking at this sketch of redemptive history, okay, don't get lost, hang with me. We've gone through mission, we've gone through church, we've gone through this redemptive sketch. Now we need to realize what do we need? Or not just we here in this church, but what does everyone need? We have to answer that question. So where do we find ourselves then in the timeline of redemptive history? Certainly not in the new heavens and new earth. We heard that in our pastoral prayer this morning. And we have felt that over these past few months as unexpected death has happened, as unexpected cancer has happened, as all kinds of things, diseases, uh, unbelief have wreaked havoc. We understand that we're not there yet. It becomes clear then that we dwell in something called the already not yet. See, the kingdom has come because Christ came. Christ came preaching the kingdom of God. That was part of his mission, to come and to preach the word. And as he did that, the kingdom is inaugurated. The king has come, so the kingdom is coming. But the kingdom will not be at its full height until Christ comes back again. And he calls his people from all over the world, his elect, to come together and be that new body. 
So we're in this already and not yet. He has forgiven us of all of our sins and we rest in his righteousness, but we still eagerly await the second coming. So if that's where we are, and if we understand mission the way we do, and we understand the church the way we do, and then we understand that we're all sinners in need of the gospel, then it should become abundantly clear what all people need. They need the good news of Jesus Christ. They need to be discipled to obey all that Christ has commanded them. Then they need to go out and make more disciples. That's the point. We are being called as ambassadors of the embassy to go out and make disciples in other places and then bring them back to the embassy of God in this world, in this time, as we long for glorification. So here's my definition of the mission of the church. Sorry, Dennis. Um, I know you will do this much better than me. Missiologist David Hesselgrave offers a narrow definition. He says the primary mission of the church and therefore of the churches is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and gather believers into local churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. Now, friends, if this seems boring to you, or if you say, well, that's good, but I think there needs to be more. Let me just posit something to you, something that could have happened. I think the reality could be that you've allowed your heart to come numb to the fact that people go to hell every day. Every day, people die from this place. We have seen that life is a vapor. We know that better now than maybe we've ever known it. And if that be the case, and if sin be real, and hell be real, then the mission is clear. People need to be made disciples of Jesus. They need the gospel. They need to know who Jesus is and their need for him for the forgiveness of their sins. And then they need to be built up so that they can go out and tell more people. It's simple. We don't have to make it super complicated. So, we've talked about definitions. We've, we've had this sketch of redemptive history. We've kind of placed ourselves here in the in-between and the already, the not yet. We've seen then a very narrow, small definition of what the, the mission of the church is. And now we get to what the mission of the church is is not. And I walk lightly here <laughs> knowing that this can cause maybe some, some anxiety or division in some people and when we think about the mission of the church, but I think it'll be helpful for us to go there. To, to have, if we want to know what it is, we have to know what it is not. So let me make one more distinction, just distinct the, this entire sermon, but I want you to understand the difference between the individual and the institution. The individual and the institution. Remember my really cheesy analogy of being a police officer. 
and you being sworn into something and you having many things that you can do that are good and that you should want to do. You should want to go out, promote peace, enact justice, uphold the constitution. You should want to do all of those things in every gamut and every way that you could touch it. But when you're assigned to a division, you have a purpose, you have a mission, you have a task. Okay, so I think when we look at it as the church, it's helpful for us to see the individual call and the institutional call. Both are good, both are missions. And I would say the difference between those two are the difference between the great commandment for the individual and the great commission for the institution of the church. You shall love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and another is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For you individually, this should be every part of you. In every instance, how you deal with people, how you tithe, how you go out and feed somebody on the street, uh, how you parent, how you do business, how you do everything. That should always be in your mind. Love God, love others. That determines everything. And then as the church, we understand that the task as an institution is to go out and make disciples of all nations. So I think Jonathan Lehman actually helps here. When he makes this distinction, and, and when I thought of it, I go, oh yeah, that is helpful. It's a little silly, but it's helpful. He says, there must be some distinction between what the whole church must do and what I as an individual Christian must do. We wouldn't tell the whole church that it's its mission to love my spouse. That doesn't make sense. And I thought in that minute, oh yeah. It's not your job, church, to love Courtney Woods like Christ loved the church. That's my job. And we're going to have words if you try, okay? It's not your mission then to raise my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Although I, I gladly call you along to help make disciples of those kiddos who I love so much. But that's actually a mission given to me and Courtney. As we raise our kids, that's specifically for the parents. And so although we, we call each other all in to help in discipleship, there are things that we do specifically as individual Christians. And then there are things that we come together and lock arms with and do as the church. Now that I've made that small distinction, let me go ahead and offend everyone. Here are four things that the mission of the church is not. Okay, this is your last part of the section. Here are four things that the mission of the church is not. Number one, the mission of the church is not social justice. Now, in this congregation, there might be like, a, yeah, all right, amen. But what I want us to think, when we are thinking about social justice, I'm trying to think of this maybe in, in the most loving way. I want to think of this in the, most, in the way that, that a Christian would want to uphold justice, right? So we go to different verses. We go to Micah 6.8, where we read that God says, He has told you, O man, what is good. Or Micah says this, inspired by God. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so there's a group of people that will say, You see, justice that's it. That's what we're called to do. Go out and do justice. And so we as Christians, brothers, hear me, and sisters, hear me. If we see racism, none of us should say, oh no, that doesn't exist. That's crazy talk. We should be the people 
understanding better than anybody else in the world that we're all made in the image of God and that we should treat each other that way. And so go have relationships with people that don't look exactly like you and then hear from them and listen to them. But when you elevate this idea of reconciling and on, on the basis of maybe an ideology that is not even Christian and you put that on the same level as making disciples and teaching people the gospel, you are sorely mistaken. You've missed the boat. You are no longer in the boat. You've jumped out of the boat. You're doing your own thing now because the mission of the church is to make disciples. Now, will part of those consequences of making disciples mean that you'll grow in your understanding and then you might say, wow, I'm wretched. I need to go apologize to this person. I need to go and reconcile to this person. Yes, and I hope it is. And praise be to God. Another way in, in social justice is this idea of institutions being oppressive. I just read Genesis 3. We're all aware that we live in the fall, right? The curse is still here. Bad things are still happening. It's not wild to, to make a connection here that there could be corrupt people in the world. And if that's the case, okay, so maybe we're a little uh, nicer to people that are struggling with different things that we don't struggle with. And we try to help them and understand them and come alongside of them and love on them well. Praise be to God. But it's not the mission of the church to call out every organization, look for corruption, and try to call it out via social media or whatever it may be, making statements every 10 minutes. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples of all nations. So, number one, the mission of the church is not social justice. But again, I would say that we should be passionate in our lives of making sure that we're loving other people and that we are seeing justice go out. But when that becomes the mission, instead of discipleship, we've missed the boat. Number two, the mission of the church is not environmental stewardship. Now, coming from California... There's a reason why I've put this in my sermon. Because that can be really quickly, and, and not just California, but streams of, maybe not our own, but a theology that will say this is super important to do. You know, uh, Genesis chapter 1 actually gives what's called the cultural mandate. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, or in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's clear. We as humans have a stewardship and have a dominion of the world. That's actually important. And so although I say, right, it's not the mission of the church, don't hear me say that it's a bad thing. Guys, we should be cognizant of our effect on the world. We should actually think about how we can better uh, everybody else's lives by what we do and, and, and not do things like burn oil in our backyard or light a tire fire, I don't know, whatever the worst thing you can think about um, in the environment, right? Uh, I'm not saying don't do things that will help the environment. I'm just saying that's not the mission of the church. The cultural mandate, yes, we're all to be stewards of this earth and do that well, but God gives the church a mission. And that's to make disciples of all nations. So those first two may have been easier. I think these last two might not be. The mission of the church is not governmental or societal reform. 
Whoa, Andrew, pump the brakes. Social justice, I get, okay? I know that. Environmentalism, okay, I'm still good with that. But societal reform, now you're messing this up because that is the mission of the church, to bring in the kingdom of God and be a blessing to all nations. Maybe you can go to Genesis 12 and see that being brought out. And while I appreciate the sentiment and I would never be someone who is against the society reforming and becoming more Christian. And I would never deny a politician who would legislate righteous, God-honoring law. No, I want to see that. And I want to think through biblically how to do that well and, and try to vote people in that will do that well. I just want you to know that it's not the mission of the church. If you go to Gen... Or, sorry, I keep saying Genesis. If you go to Matthew, which is our memory verse... Um, Matthew 18, I want to be fair because I want to go here and I want to say this is a verse that a lot of people will use to say, no, 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 this is societal reform. I know that there are plenty of other verses, people, if this is where you're at, um, but I'm just going to use this for the sake of time. Matthew 28, 19 talks about making disciples of all nations. And then there will be a plea, Andrew, I'm all good with you wanting to make disciples, but we're supposed to make disciples of the nations. And how do we do that? Well, we then are going to reform maybe the government in that nation so that they can propose good godly law, and then that will be societal reform, and it will be good. And we want that, right? That's that's what we want. Well, I want you to look at that word, nations, and realize when Christ is talking about here, and we read this in the Greek, the ethnos, The nations are talking about the people. It's talking about the people of these nations that we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to disciple and we're supposed to call out of darkness and into light. You're not satisfied. Okay. Another thing that I just want to point out is that this idea of societal reform is just not the testimony of the New Testament. It's just not what we see happening in the New Testament. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are sojourners and exiles in dispersion, right? We've been dispersed throughout all the nations. In all the New Testament letters, the recipients are not in a place of cultural majority, but are a minority who are called to live ambassadors as ambassadors to Christ. Okay, Acts chapter 1 again. You guys are doing great. Acts chapter 1, we had read verse 8, right? We had read verse 8 talking about this idea of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go and and be witnesses in all the world. But when we start in in verse 6 of chapter 1, Christ says, or he will say, so when they had come together, they asked him. Now, pay attention here. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Two things I want you to see. First off, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom? What were they wanting him to do when he first got there? They wanted him to restore the kingdom. They wanted him to be the king. In fact, remember when Peter rebuked him? When Jesus was like, I'm going to die, and Peter was like, don't say that. You don't need to say that. And Christ tells him, get behind me, Satan, right? You don't know the will of God. And so the reality was they were steeped in this culture waiting for the Messiah, the conquering king who would come back and put Israel at their rightful place, take over the Roman Empire, and then they would rule and reign. This is what they were longing for. They were just baked in this tradition. And then Jesus comes and says, actually, I'm going to die. 
I've come here to die. Because it's not this, or not only this physical reality, but much more importantly is the spiritual one that you need. And so Jesus here gets the question again. Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? I mean, I get we were wrong then, but now you've raised from the dead, right? This is the time. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he goes in to talk about what we already talked about, going and being witnesses, not conquerors, but witnesses. There are more verses here. Uh, maybe this afternoon, go back and look at Matthew 24, verses 30 through 31. We're kind of unpacking this idea of Christ coming, gathering his people, and that the nations were mourning the fact that Christ had come and he was gathering his elect. In his book on what is the mission of the church, Kevin DeYoung states, you see, the disciples were not simply to sit and enjoy the fact that all authority now belonged to King Jesus. They were to go and proclaim that fact to a dark world that had no idea of that reality. They were to witness, not build, not establish, not usher in, not even build for the kingdom, but bear witness to it. They were to be subjects and heralds, not agents of the kingdom. Finally, your last what the church is not or what the mission of the church is not. The mission of the church is not evangelism. <gasps> no, now Andrew, just get off stage, tackle him. He is totally wrong. He's gone off the deep end. Let me, maybe that was trying to get your attention. You've been here for 45 minutes trying to wake you up. It is the fact that it's not just evangelism. If the church were only focused on, let's just get new people in here. Let's get baptisms. Let's just make sure that, that everybody in these seats are just brand new believers, which is awesome. And I want you to go out there and I want you to share the gospel. And I want to bring in brand new believers all the time into this church. But if that's all we ever did, if we didn't actually sit here and then be discipled, to worship God, which is our greatest need, not just uh, being saved from sin, but that we would love God and know who he is and understand how do I even worship him and, and why is it important for us to have a call to worship and to sing songs of praise to God and pray to God with the congregation and hear the word of God read aloud and preach the word of God and then eat the word of God and then see the word of God on display when we see people baptized is usually where our baptismal is. Why is it important? That's because we need to continue to be made disciples. It doesn't just end when you uh, say a prayer and you are no longer on a pathway to hell. That's not the end. And then, and then, once you have, or once you're beginning, you don't have to be some sort of super disciple, but once you're being discipled and you realize the need, then you go out and make disciples in your workplace in your division, in your business, whatever it may be, in your hospital, at home with your children. Your call is to be discipled, to go out and make more disciples. So this morning, in conclusion, the mission is a task to be sent out to be completed by the called out ones the called out ones are then called out to go and make disciples. And it's important. And that's what these next three weeks will be for us to clearly define the mission so we don't get distracted from it. Would you pray with me? Oh God, our God.
How majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, as we have heard from your word and as we have just jumped around through it here and there, Father, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning. I pray that they would be further discipled, further equipped to go out and make more disciples. Father, I pray that you would give them a burning desire to disciple. Not that they have to be perfect, but that they would want to disciple that they would want to share the gospel, that they would want to walk alongside of other people, bear their burdens, love them well. Father, I also pray for these four things that I said were not the mission of the church. It's not that these things are demonized. And I pray if I've confused anybody this morning in those ways, that you would just help them forget it. That you would help them cling on to your word, which is what we rely on. And it is what we go to, to help us understand the mission you've given us. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.